And I know our scripture reading starts with uh, verse 3. That's what we're going to be focusing on. But uh, the actual context for verse 3 through 11 uh, is verses 1 and 2 that we dealt with two weeks ago. And uh, so I want us to uh, remember exactly uh, what he said there. For, so let's stand for the reading of God's word. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing you a new commandment, but an old commandment. Um, I'm writing you no new, I'm sorry, commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment, but I'm Uh, writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, what words you have given to us. What a gift of these words and your word. Thank you. Thank you that you have have told us things so that we can really know if we are walking in you. And we are grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous, our advocate. Will you open our eyes and hearts to you today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So as you can see, we are approaching the Lord's table. And typically, after I uh, preach a message, then either at the end of that message or right before we partake of uh, the Lord's Supper, I read to you what we call the words of institution from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
But rather than wait, I I want to introduce what we're about to talk about from that passage. It gives us a context. It gives us a reason to really need to know where I am I before the Father, before we take of the Lord's Supper. So let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 11. It starts with verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. That's that's the key here in terms of discerning. Let me read it again. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And then he gives the remedy, in essence. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So... Typically, I would now do what we, we call fencing the table. And it's not, it's not because we want to keep everybody out of the table. Instead, it is for, for protection, out of love. I'm so grateful that God, God told us how we can partake as the people of God, as children of the living God, how we can partake without offending him without making a mockery of this table because this table represents the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. He, our propitiation, our advocate. And so he gives us this warning that we should examine ourselves. But then he says, and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. So while he gives that caution, he says, look deep inside. Now, we we aren't really capable of looking deep enough because we tend to overlook, we tend to avoid, we tend to justify. And so what we have to depend upon is his Holy Spirit and his word before we partake of the sacrament. So as we look at this passage, I want us to do so, and as we do so, be looking deeply at ourselves. Because he is now, as we we told you as we entered into this book, he is providing tests. He is providing ways that we can look and we can see, am I really in Christ Am I one of his? Am I a child of the living God? 
So in the passage that, that we're focusing on, uh, he begins, verse 3, in talking about obedience as evidence of knowing Christ. He says this, verse 3, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So let's talk about the phrase, to know him, to know Christ. There is, as we know, there's a difference between having a head knowledge of God and a saving knowledge of God through Christ. So it's not a minor difference. It's a huge difference. Because a mere head knowledge of Christ, which most people, especially most people in the South, they at least know about Christ. They've at least heard of him. And they may even have pretty good feelings about him. But that doesn't mean that they are in a saving relationship with the Father. So we need to understand there, that, that difference between knowing about God and knowing God. No religious experience is genuine if it doesn't affect how we live and act. So this is a key. It doesn't say we come to know him if we obey his commandments. You get it? That would be backwards. We come to know him if we obey his commandments. That's not what it says. Instead, it says that's one way of proving that we actually do know him if we keep his commandments. So in other words, if we really know him, that is one of the evidences that will be in our life that we will obey and desire to obey. Now, to what degree do we have to obey in order for us to say, yeah, I, I really know Christ and here is an evidence of it? How can we really have confidence that we, we really know him just because of our obedience? Does it have to be obeying him perfectly? Well, if that was the case, there'd be no need for a test. Of course, it's not obeying him perfectly. We just read that uh, uh, from two weeks ago, if we do sin. And in, in the first chapter, it says, yes, if you sin, here's what you do. So John is acknowledging that indeed... That is a part of this life. It's a matter of how we deal with it. John Calvin said this. He does not mean that those who perfectly keep the law, he says, because there is none, but those who strive according to the capacity of human infirmity to form their life in obedience to God. So he had talked about forgiveness. Because there are times when we disobey. He acknowledged that. So right on the heels of that, John uh, speaks about a claim that if somebody makes it, it's, it's patently untrue. Verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. The truth is not in him. 
So if somebody um, wants to make that claim, he calls them out. You know, here is John. He's laying it all out. Because he doesn't want people that really don't know Christ to think that they are okay. He's not satisfied with that. He's saying you can't have it both ways. You can't go around telling people that you're a Christian but ignore obedience to his word. You can't. Those two don't fit together. And it makes you a liar. So to whom are you lying? Well, at least, at least to those around you. Maybe to the church. In other words, if you say, yeah, I'm a believer, but you ignore what his word says. So you may be lying to the church, maybe even lying to yourself, and certainly lying to God. I think that's the definition of a liar. If you're lying to basically everyone else, including yourself, if you really, really think you know Christ, but you refuse to obey. Back in the Gospel of John, where, you know, he says that the, the truth is not in him here, but back in the Gospel, he said, quoting Jesus, I am the truth. So I wonder if he's talking about that too. When he says the truth is not in him, Christ is not in him. So that's the untrue claim. But then there's a, a genuine condition. Verse 5, whoever keeps his word uh, in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. So it, it's not enough just to obey his commands. In other words, you kind of tick off the Ten Commandments that maybe you memorized at one point and you say, yeah, I, um, I, I don't think I've taken the Lord's name in vain. I'm, I'm not worshiping graven images, you know. I, I'm not lying, you know, that much. Uh, I don't, <laughs> I haven't committed adultery, you know. And you, and you go through all those and you say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good when I look around at others around me, I'm not looking at you all, but when I look around at others around me, I think, <laughs> I'm doing okay. But he doesn't just say, keep the commands. He says, keep the word. So the, you have the commands, and then you have the word that expand on the commands. And that's how we are to live. Verse 6 says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So how do you walk in the same way he, Jesus, walked? Well, Jesus had already answered that back in the Gospel of John. He said, verse 15, If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So he showed his love for the Father. He's saying this, I show my love for the Father through obedience to him. Now, here's a caution. I'm going to give you several cautions today. But here's a caution about that. We have to be careful not to substitute acts of obedience for a genuine relationship with Christ and with other believers. That's what the Pharisees did, isn't it? 
They, you know, if you said, give me your testimony about you knowing God, they'd have said, well, I do this and this and this. I've done this and this and this. And we'll see in a moment that, that Jesus addresses that and says, no, no. It, you, you should have done those things, but there's, there's another aspect that you're leaving out because all you're focusing upon are those acts. So the next test, you know, the first one being obeying his word. The next test here is love. It's evidence of knowing Christ. Verse 7. And sorry, I messed that up when I read it earlier. I've read this dozens of times this week, and I think I've stuttered every single time that that I read it. Uh, But here's what it says, beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. So he's starting out, and we're going to explain this because it almost looks like this and the next verse contradict each other. But uh, you remember we talked about the Gnostic Uh, the group of people called Gnostics and that heresy. And one of the things that the Gnostics uh, loved to say is, we have these secrets and you need to learn these. These are new new things that you need to learn and and if you're going to have a relationship with God. And so here is John addressing that heresy and saying, look, this, this isn't something new. This is what was given long ago. It's as basic as the gospel itself. This is what you've been taught from the time you first professed Christ. Then he gives the other side of it. Verse 8. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So while it seems like they're a contradiction, this isn't a new commandment, this is a new commandment, what he's doing in verse 8 is he's referring to the way Jesus referred to this commandment. Uh, Back in John 13, verse 34, this is what Jesus said. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you're, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So he's saying to the, the Gnostics, look, this is, this is something that has been around forever, but he, he's acknowledging, but you know, when Jesus came, he said, here's what I want to leave with you right at the time he was washing his disciples' feet. So here's another claim that's untrue, and we'll see this pattern as we move through the book. Verse 9, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. And then a couple of verses later, verse 11, he kind of gives a verdict. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Let me boil those two down. If you hate your brother, you are not a Christian. I'm not judging you. I don't know your heart. 
But John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying, you need to know this. If you hate your brother, you're in darkness. You aren't a believer. And then he contrasts it with the true claim, verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Again, here's how Jesus put it. So, whatever you wish what, uh, that others would do to you, do also to them, for that's the law and the prophets. So, there's the idea of the law again, but the real application of obedience to the word is how we treat each other. And, and here's what I was referring to earlier in terms of the Pharisees. He is, he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees and he pronounces a woe upon them, a judgment upon them. And he says this in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. Now, I want you to notice, he's not saying there's anything wrong with that. But he says, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So he's saying, yeah, you should tithe. That's what we've taught. But, but that's not your righteousness. That should be an evidence of a, of a faith. And then, another evidence that has to go right along with it is loving those around you. So he puts these two together. So here's another caution. Um, here's a, first a diagnostic, diagnostic question. Have you ever, even once, loved someone with your actions and caught yourself realizing that before you were a Christian or earlier in your Christian life, you wouldn't have loved that person? Have you ever found yourself in that position? Saying, you know, I, this isn't like me. If, if I wasn't in Christ, I wouldn't love that person. So here's the, the other caution. And that is... If you're feeling a little bit smug and thinking to yourself, well, you know, I don't hate, hate anyone, really. Here comes Jesus to address that, that smugness, that being self-satisfied, saying, well, I don't really hate. He said this. You've heard it, that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. This is Matthew 5, and hate your enemy. And here's where he ratchets it up. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven so that you may be children of the living God. What he's saying? It isn't enough not to hate. That's the very thing he was correcting. 
in the Pharisees that he was calling hypocrites. They would have said, we don't really hate anybody. I've shared this with you before. Um, so if you remember this, I want you to please indulge me. But I don't believe I've ever heard in, in my life a, a better illustration of, of how this works. When I was in seminary over 40 years ago now, uh, in the church that Connie and I were attending, Richard Wormbrandt came and spoke to the church. Now, Richard Wormbrandt uh, was a, a, a Romanian pastor who wrote the book Tortured for Christ. And some have said he may be the most tortured Christian ever. Who knows? But he was under the communist regime back then. And he was tortured because he was a Christian. When we heard him speak at a Sunday evening service, he had to sit down because of, he was a, an older man at that point, and the toll that the torture had taken on his body and also other aspects of ill health that he had had, some of them just because he was in prison uh, a, a part of his life. He said this. He told uh, of at one point because of a number of health issues that he was having, uh, they, they moved him to a room. And that room was basically where they, they put prisoners for them to die and then they would dispose of them. So they took him into a bed in that room. And then at some later point, uh, they brought in uh, a priest who had been tortured, and he too was left in that room because of the beatings and everything that he had taken. They left him there to die. A few days later, they brought in another prisoner. The priest is on this side of him, and there was a bed on this side, and the one they put there was actually one of the guards who had tortured them. And Wormbrandt said, look, under communism, they don't just hate Christians. They don't just hate those that are against them. But if, if some, one of their own steps out of line, they hate them too. They just hate. I still remember him saying that. So here he was with his priest, and he said he couldn't even look toward that guard who had tortured this man on the other side of him. And then he said, and then I witnessed a miracle. This, this torturer said to the priest, Pastor, will you please pray for me? I cannot die. I have committed such terrible crimes. And he said, here's what the miracle was. That pastor, that priest, got two of the prisoners that still could walk, and, and he called them over, and, and they each took one of his arms, and he hobbled around Wormbrandt's bed over to the side of this one 
who had tortured him. And, and there he caressed his head and he said, you know, I, I can't forgive you. No Christian can forgive you for what you've done. But Christ in me forgives you. He went back to his bed several days later, which happened to be Christmas Eve. They both died. And he said, what a picture. He said, all of heaven must have stopped when the torturer and the one who was tortured entered into heaven together. When the murderer and the one who was murdered entered into heaven together forever. That is the love that only Christ can give and show through his children. Let's pray. Lord, we don't have it in us. We can't obey. We can't love. But you showed perfect obedience. You showed perfect love. And if we're yours, you dwell in us. And so, help us to know our calling is to you. Not to things. Not to acts of righteousness but to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.